Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. It is found on page 1 in the Pew Bible, so easy to find. And if you don't own a Bible of your own, um, please feel free to take the one that's sitting right there in front of you as a gift from us. Genesis 1, 26 to 27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning and welcome to the Brookside campus. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm the campus pastor here. I'm really glad that you've joined us this morning. And uh, before we get started looking at the message, I just wanted to uh, remind you, especially if you weren't here last week, but during this new series that we began last week, we're trying uh, something new. Uh, this is kind of a series that we're in about cultural narratives and the stories our culture tells. We, we thought this is probably going to be a series that raises a lot of questions, more than we'll have time to try to address in every sermon. And so uh, there's going to be a number on the screen here, and you can, uh, with a phone number. So with that number, uh, store that in your phone. And if you have a question, whether it's while you're listening to the message now or even later on this afternoon as you're thinking about it, just text your questions into that phone number. And uh, on Mondays between three and four o'clock, we're going to do a, a Facebook Live video to the pastors who are teaching that Sunday across our campuses. Uh, we'll just work through as many of those questions as we can and, and try to provide some, some responses to those questions. So uh, if you have questions that you would think, huh, I'm curious about this, or I wonder how this would work itself out in life, or what does this thing mean in the text of the Bible, um, just text those in and we'll, we'll try to give responses to those uh, as we can on Monday afternoon. So, um, and that's on our main Facebook page uh, as well. So uh, each of our campuses has a page. The live broadcast will be on our main Christ Community page. The video then will be posted across all of our, our pages. So um, just wanted to remind you of that. And uh, we did that for the first time last week and it, it went really well. So um, but now, as we prepare to look at this, this message and this uh, passage this morning, um, I want to begin and ask God to be with us, helping us to understand his word and uh, more fully apply it and obey it in our lives. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, I'm thankful that each and every week you come and speak afresh to us through your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that you would do that once again this Sunday. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to begin this morning by just asking a question uh, and just think about this. Uh, what is one of the worst things that someone could accuse you of in our culture today? Just think about that for a moment. And I'm sure a number of things are, are coming to mind as you think about that, what's the, one of the, some of the worst things someone could accuse me of? Maybe uh, being intolerant or closed-minded might be things that are coming to mind. Uh, but what about being inauthentic? I think the accusation of being inauthentic or being fake or phony is one of the, the things that uh, we're all deeply afraid of in our cultural context, especially if we're, especially if we're younger uh, but at any stage of life, I think we hear this message, sometimes that explicitly, often it's implicit, but that you have to be, you must be true to yourself. Be true to yourself. 
And I think it creates some tension for us because there's also a lot of pressure to conform, right? We want to fit in. We, we don't want to be the, the oddball. We want to fit in. But we also don't want to be accused of being fake or phony in order to fit in. We, we feel this pressure to, to be true to ourselves. So for example, uh, I genuinely really like Taylor Swift's music. Um, and, and, and sure, you know, it's not John Coltrane or Mozart or Radiohead, but, but when I hear Shake It Off or Welcome to New York, I, I want to sing along. Uh, and I'm not sure yet about the new single that came out at the end of this week. Uh, I've listened to it twice. First listen, I was a little bit, I'm not sure. Second listen, I was like, maybe. Um, so not, notwithstanding the new single, but I feel a tension saying that to you this morning um, because 35-year-old men with Masters of Divinity degrees uh, just aren't supposed to like Taylor Swift. Some of you have already lost a little respect for me uh, <laughs> because I've shared that with you this morning. That's okay. Um, but so why did I do that? Why did I risk it? Because I'm, I'm banking on the fact that in our culture, hopefully you'll view me as more heroic by being true to myself and telling you that I, I genuinely love Taylor Swift's music uh, than, than pretending like I don't. Because I think, again, in our cultural context, maybe you think that it's lame for a 35-year-old pastor to like Taylor Swift, but I think it's even more lame to deny that. That's what our culture says. It's even, you've got to be true to yourself. It's one of the supreme moral imperatives in our culture today. But it's difficult, isn't it? We feel the, the cross pressures to conform and also to stand out and be unique. We want to be true to ourselves, but there's so many different options and choices of, of how to define who we are by the, the music we like or the clothes we wear, or the kind of sports we play. So what we want to look at this morning is why do we have this cultural narrative of be true to yourself? We want to explore it. And that's actually what we're doing all throughout the series this fall that we're calling uh, A Story Worth Living. Because you see, all human beings are profoundly shaped by the stories that their culture tells. Stories about what the good life is, how to get success, what, what's the pathway to happiness. But most of the time, we aren't aware of those stories. They're just so much a part of us. They're so much a part of our, of our culture, our movies, our music, um, our friends, our relationships that we don't, they're just assumed. We don't even think about them. And it isn't until we encounter someone uh, from a different cultural context uh, who doesn't same, share the same set of basic assumptions and basic stories that we do that we begin to realize first that, wow, I didn't even realize I had a, a set of stories like this in my life um, or how much I'm being shaped by them. And so we're looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 3, which lay out the foundational biblical story, and asking the question, how do our cultural stories fit in with that? Where does Genesis affirm those stories? Because every culture and time gets part of the story, right? Where is Genesis affirming the goodness of the cultural stories that we tell? But also, where does it challenge those stories? Where does it push back against those stories? And this is in large part why these early chapters of Genesis in particular were written. As God's people prepared to leave Egypt, where they had been enslaved for the past 400 years, and enter the promised land that God was sending them to, leading them to, 
God inspired Moses to write the first five books of the Bible. It's called the Torah, the teaching, the law. But the early chapters in particular gave Israel a counter story, a different set of cultural narratives from the Egyptians or the Canaanites. The the, uh, Israelites had been enslaved for 400 years. It's a really long time. Surrounded by, imbibing, living in the midst of the Egyptian cultural story. Now they're moving to a new place where the Canaanites have lived for hundreds and hundreds of years. And they have their own sets of cultural stories. God wants to provide for his people a biblical narrative, a true narrative that would define them as a people. And so this morning as we look at this powerful cultural narrative of be true to yourself, we're going to see the goodness of this narrative, the goodness of of what is in be true to yourself. We're going to see some of the frustration and pain that come with that narrative. And then toward the end, hopefully see the joy that comes when you find your true identity. So first, as we turn to Genesis chapter 1, we see that it actually affirms as good some of what is in this idea of a cultural narrative of be true to yourself. How, How does it do this? Well, in this simple way, because you as a human being are the best thing that God made. You as a human being are the very best thing that God made. Look again at the verses that Kate read for us just a moment ago in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps along the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So when God creates human beings, they are unique from everything else that he has made. See, all along, if you read Genesis 1, starting with verse 1, all along in the narrative, up until this point, God has spoken and said, let there be. But here he begins with, let us. Let us make. There's this unique personal personality, an usness that's on display. The plurality of us is sometimes understood as, as just a, a royal sense of God's majesty and power. But it also points us to what will become clear later in the biblical story, that God is not only one, but he's also three. That at the very core of all reality is relationship and mutuality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is an us. But not only is there a uniqueness to let us make, there's also a difference in what happens after God makes humans. Because again, as we walk through the days of creation in Genesis chapter 1, at the end of each day, God says, and he saw that it was good. He pronounces that what he has made is good. But here, following the creation of human beings in his image, the declaration is that what he has made is very good. Very good. Human beings are uniquely made in God's image, in his likeness. Uh, Nothing else in in creation is. All throughout the Bible, it is clear that human beings are the the best 
thing that God has made. Later in Psalm 8, when the Psalms are the, the story or the, uh, the song book, the poetry book of the Bible, the writer in Psalm 8 describes human beings as being crowned with glory and honor. We're unique amongst all creation in that. So what is all this saying then? Well, it, it's saying that our, our identity is not found in the culture around us. It's not based on what others tell you you should be. It's found in who we are. Which is very much what the cultural narrative of be true to yourself is based on. It says, don't, be true to yourself says don't look around at other people and let them tell you who you should be. It says look at who you are and be true to that. Uh, today in our culture, we, we assume, almost take for granted, that you can be who you want to be, that you can do what you want to do if you have a dream or a path or a career, that you, you can pursue that and tr- chase it down. And, and not only that you can, but that you should. You should try to do that. But when Moses first wrote these words, inspired by God, revealing that we are made in the image of God, this is something incredibly unique unprecedented. Because in the other narratives, the Egyptian narratives, the other Canaanite narratives, ancient Near Eastern creation narratives, the, the world is this thing that the gods, this, this pantheon of gods have to manage, and it's chaotic, and it's gross, and they sort of create human beings to do all that nasty, dirty work that they don't want to do. There's a strong hierarchical structure in place that your position uh, was divinely decreed by the gods. You're locked into your class, your job, your role, because the gods had put you there and you, you, you're fated. You can't defy the gods. You're just stuck. Genesis chapter 1 introduces an incredibly different and deeply dignifying alternative to those stories. That each human being is created as an individual for connection with God and others and to reflect Him in the world that He has made, crowned with glory and honor. Not just slaves to do work that the gods didn't want to do. So there's, a, there's good reason that this idea of be true to yourself rings true to us. Because even if you just think back to two, three hundred years ago, how much more limited our, our choices were as people. If you were a man, uh, you could do and most likely would do just what your father had done as a farmer or a tradesman. Perhaps you could pursue a, a career in the military or maybe in the clergy or religious order. But you were expected to live up to the traditional norms and expectations. And if you were a woman, it was even more closed off to you. I mean, your entire life sort of depended on on finding a maid, and then that person, that maid, determined much of what your life would look like from that point on. But that picture of life, of sort of being locked into what your father did or attached only to what your husband has done, that doesn't sound like the picture that we get in Genesis 1. This picture in Genesis 1 of a, of a world brimming with, with creativity and potentiality and individuality. Human beings are called to shape and develop this world to collaborate with one another and with God to make something truly beautiful of the world in which they've been placed. And Human beings are much more like God than, than like animals. We tend to de- we desire and think at a much deeper and robust level than just instinct. 
And Christians were some of the first to recognize and articulate uh, this reality that we should, we should ought to try to understand our desires and our loves, to understand who we are. Nearly 2,000 years ago when St. Augustine wrote his book, The Confessions, it was groundbreaking that you would consider your loves, this kind of autobiographical, look at what are my desires telling me about myself for good and for ill. So there's a reason that the cultural story of be true to yourself feels so right to us. We were created to be creative, to bring our own unique contribution to the world, to God's world. We should look inside of ourselves and seek to understand how has God made me? What is, how has he gifted me? How has he created me? How is he calling me to contribute in his world? The, the trouble comes, though, when we only look inside of ourselves at our desires. And this is what we mean in our cultural context often when we talk about being true to yourself. A couple of years ago, the Huffington Post ran an article titled, What is Being True to Yourself? And there's a number of really helpful points that the author makes in the article, but I think that the conclusion of the article is ultimately unhelpful. Here are the final sentences. Remember that you're the game changer. You're in charge. You are the boss of you. You set the ground rules and boundaries. No one else has that superb power or pleasure. No one else ever should. Live your truth. You see, when that becomes the standard of what it means to be true to yourself, we set ourselves up for deep frustration and pain. Why? Because chasing your true self in that sense will only leave you running. Because chasing your true self in that sense will only leave you running. Uh, you see, the, one of the great contributions of the Judeo-Christian worldview is the value of the individual. The whole Western concept of, of human dignity and human rights are deeply rooted in the Christian story. But this be true to yourself as framed in the Huffington Post piece that's so prominent in our culture today is something different than just a, a value of the individual and human dignity and human rights. It's, it's an entirely different thing. Um, the UC Berkeley sociologist Robert Bellow was the Bella was one of the first scholars to kind of thoroughly document this shift from the goodness of the individual to what he calls expressive individualism. In his 1985 book, Habits of the Heart, Individualism in American Commitment and Life, or Commitment in American Life, he, he catalogs and traces out this shift from, again, this positive idea of human individualism and dignity to this expressive individualism. Uh, more recently, Charles Taylor uh, he's a professor emeritus of philosophy at McGill University in Canada. McGill is basically the, the Harvard of, of Canada. Um, he describes the same phenomenon in his book, A Secular Age. But instead of using the language of expressive individualism, Taylor calls our age, describes this phenomenon as an age of authenticity, which he explains like this. He says, I mean the understanding of life, which emerges with the romantic expressive of the late 18th century, that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own. 
as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from the outside by society or a previous generation or religious or political authority. Now that's a pretty dense philosophical quote. Um, but the, the title song from the Disney movie Frozen captures what Taylor is trying to say here in a, in a much more poetic and memorable way. I mean, you know the, the song, right? Let it go um, from Frozen. Here's, here's a verse. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No rights, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Elsa, she breaks away from conforming to what's been imposed on her from the outside. And it's viewed as heroic. It's why I can tell you that I love Taylor Swift and feel like I'm doing something courageous. This is the story that our culture says that the, the true heroes, they look around at the, what's being imposed on them and the conformity and say, no, I'm going I'm to be true to myself in the face of all of that. And, and again, as we saw just a moment ago, that there's a goodness to the individual, a goodness to understanding how has God made me? Wanting to be true to that, not trying to be someone else, not trying to be someone I'm not. But if we only go chasing after our true selves in the ways that Bella and Taylor and Elsa describe, we end up in exhausted and frustrated. Why? Well, I think there are at least three reasons that, that come to mind for me. First, is that we don't really know what we want. This idea of be true to yourself, it, it's based on a, a sense that I know what I want and that what I want stays constant over time, that that's what I'm true to, these desires. But, but our desires change, don't they? I mean, what I wanted out of life when I was 15 is different than, than what I wanted out of life when I was 25, which is different still than, than what I want most at, at 35. Our desires, they change over time. I remember an episode of the television show, uh, How I Met Your Mother, where one of the, the characters, Marshall Erickson, discovers this letter that it was a class assignment. When he was 15 years old, he had to write a letter to his 30-year-old self about what his life would look like. And he finds this letter, and it kind of sends him into this tailspin of depression because he isn't living out the life that his 15-year-old self imagined for him. And he, and he kind of begins to wonder, have I sold out? Am I, am I not true to myself? See, not only do our desires change over time, though, but they also compete with one another. So we have the one challenge of, well, which self am I true to? Am I true to my 15-year-old self, my 30-year-old self? But also, which set of desires that I have right now in this moment do I count as my true self? So comedian Jerry Seinfeld in some of his stand-up comedy talks about these sort of two personas that exist in him, morning guy and night guy. And how night guy is always messing up morning guy's life. You know? So night guy wants to stay out late and party. And morning guy is saying, well, you should go to bed because you've got to go to work in the morning. Um, and night guy's like, well, that's morning guy's problem. I don't have to deal with that. Um, but who's the true us? Are we true to morning guy or are we true to night guy? Um, or I have a desire to be healthy. I also have a desire to eat a lot of ice cream. You know, which one of those is the true me? If I'm going to be true to myself, which set of desires am I most, am I untrue to myself if I deny myself a bowl of ice cream? Which self, the healthy self or the ice cream loving self, 
Am I true to? And, and when? And how do I make that choice? So the, the first problem is that our desires are changing, and they often are in conflict with one another. So we struggle in that regard. A second reason, second problem that we have is that our desires are culturally determined in so many ways. Whether we want to believe it or not, our cultural environment shapes which of our desires we believe should be seen as the real us and which of our desires should be seen as, well, that's not the real me, I just need to, that's a negative aspect of my personality, or that's not the true me. So, for example, Pastor Tim Keller gives a a helpful thought experiment here. He says, imagine you have a sort of a a Viking warrior 400 years ago, and and this Viking warrior finds within himself two sets of desires. One set of desires is to to kill and conquer and pillage, and and another set of desires is a desire for a romantic relationship with someone of the same sex. Now, in his cultural context 400 years ago as a Viking warrior, He's going to look at his desire to kill and pillage and conquer and say, well, that's, that's the real me. This desire for same-sex relationship is, that must be an aberration. That's not the true me. But Keller says, take that same person and put them in Manhattan in 2017. And they feel these same sets of desires for violence and conquering and on the other hand, is the desire for a relationship with someone of the same sex. Because of the cultural environment shifts, they say, well, the violence, that's, that's not the real me. I, I, I need to get rid of that in my personality. I need to embrace this other facet as the real me, the true me. And this doesn't just happen across historical differences either. The, the different cultures and history have emphasized different things as being the true you and that kind of thing. It also even happens within our contemporary culture, that there are different sets of cultural values. Uh, in his fantastic book, uh, it's also very sobering, Hillbilly Elegy by J.D. Vance, he captures this wrestling of what it means to be true to oneself. See, J.D. grew up in the white working class communities of Kentucky and Ohio, where he learned from a very early age that defending your honor against any insult or affront was paramount. You had to defend your honor and the honor of those that you you loved from any insult. However, after J.D. turned 18, he joined the Marines. He spent four years there and then went to college and graduated from Yale Law, where there was a whole different set of values in the Marines and law school that emphasized self-control and restraint and discipline and empathy So in the book, he he wrestles with which of these is his true self. And he describes a moment riding in a car with his wife when someone cuts them off in traffic. And he writes, I honked, the guy flipped me off, and when we stopped at a red light, this guy in front of me, I unbuckled my seatbelt and opened the car door. I planned to demand an apology and even fight the guy if necessary. But my common sense prevailed and I shut the door before I got out. My wife was proud of me for resisting my natural instinct. He says, the other driver's sin was to insult my honor. And it was on that honor that nearly every element of my happiness depended as a child. It kept the school bully from messing with me. He says, for the first 18 years or so of my life, standing down in a moment like that would have earned me a verbal lashing. 
The objectively right course of action, he writes, was something that the majority of my life taught me was repulsive to an upstanding young man. For a few hours after I did the right thing by not beating this guy up, I silently criticized myself. Which was his true self? See, being true to ourselves is frustrating because our desires are changing and because our culture is constantly influencing which set of desires we feel like should be the real us. And third, and this is much shorter, but just chasing our true selves is exhausting. Because today in our culture, we're faced with more choice than any people at any other time in history. And just think about the Cheesecake Factory. Have you seen the menu at the Cheesecake Factory, right? I mean, there, there are doctoral dissertations that are shorter than that menu. Um, I'm convinced that there has to be. Uh, and, and there are so many different ways and options to, to define ourselves in, in what we're eating or uh, in career choices and education choices and internships, all these kinds of things that are out there in the world. And, and researchers have determined that when we have too much choice, we actually become increasingly unhappy. It's why I love the menu at In-N-Out Burger. If you've ever been to In-N-Out, there's not, they're out west, but it's just a clear, simple menu. There's only four or five kind of things. And surely there's some off-menu tweaks you can have, but it's just basic. And it's why I get a headache when I try to look at the Cheesecake Factory menu. So in light of all this, I think that you know, the best that we can hope for is that we live in an ever-shifting sort of selfishly authentic life that I'm just in the moment I'm being true to whatever my desires are but we're constantly shifting them we're not consistent except for with our own sort of desires selfishly the worst that can happen is that we are trapped in sort of the paralysis and despair of of not knowing who we are constantly being confused and feeling lost about who am I really what does really define me But there is hope. Because you see, Genesis 1 provides us with a stable source for our identity. An identity that comes from outside of us, but that does not oppress us. You see, what becomes so clear in the Genesis story is that our identity is not achieved or constructed by us, but it's a gift that we receive from God. Our identity isn't something that is achieved, but it's something that we receive. We are made in God's image. We are made in his likeness. We were made to be true to someone else. You were created with more than you in mind. As creatures made in the image of God, men and women, boys and girls, made for connection and reflection. You were not simply created for yourself alone, But being made in the image of God, it means that we were made for deep connection with him and with others and to reflect him in the world. It also means that the most important questions about who the real me is have already been answered for us. We are creatures who have been lovingly made by a God who cares for us and we are to reflect his beauty and goodness and love in the world. One of the great paradoxes of the Christian story of the gospel 
is that in order to find our true selves, we actually have to lose ourselves. In order to find ourselves, we must lose ourselves. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 10. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To be true to yourself at the deepest level means first losing yourself. You see, in the gospel, our highest call is not to be true to ourselves, but to be true to, conform to Jesus. And we discover in this paradoxically that when we are most conformed to Jesus, that we become most truly who we have always longed to be. You see, to know him is eternal life. To serve him is perfect freedom. The Apostle Paul explains it like this in Galatians chapter 2. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. However, far from erasing our true selves, when we lose ourselves and find our identity in Christ, that is when we find that we are our true and best self. Because you see, Jesus is the true human, the image of God, what we are always made to be. And when we find our identity in him, we become the sorts of people that we have always longed to be. So for example, what does this look like in, in life? Well, if you take a, the list of Christian characteristics that Paul lists out in Galatians chapter 5, they're called the fruit of the Spirit. This is an amazing list of, of Christian characters. Just think of a person who's like this. This is how Paul describes this person. They're marked by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is an incredible person. It's the kind of person you want as your best friend. It's the kind of person you want to marry. It's the kind of person that you want as your kid's teacher at school. It's the kind of person you want as your next-door neighbor. It's the kind of person you want as a coworker, as an employee. Someone marked by love and patience and self-control and gentleness. But if you are only seeking to be true to yourself, you will constantly undermine those traits at every turn. You won't ever end up like that kind of person. But if you are true to Christ, you will find in increments, little by little, that you are becoming more and more of that person the person you've always wanted to be, always longed to be, the kind of person who makes the best coworker, the best spouse, the best friend, the best employee. And a whole community of those kinds of people is an incredible thing. But it's only if you seek to be true to Christ that you will become that. You'll become the person that you always long to be. You see, in Jesus, you have a stable secure identity. He has promised to love you and he's demonstrated his love for you by dying for you. You see, no matter the mistake you have made, no matter how badly you've messed up in your life, you cannot stop Jesus from loving you. 
Our identity is secure in Jesus not because we have performed or we have been good enough, but because Jesus has performed on our behalf. This is the Christian uh, doctrine, what Christians call justification, the Christian doctrine of justification, that Jesus receives our failures, our misplaced desires, and that we receive his goodness and his life, that we are declared righteous, that he took my identity on the cross, the identity of selfishness and inwardly focused sin, so that I could have his identity, so that I could be adopted into his family, declared righteous. And when you have that, that kind of security, it births within you this incredible blend of humility and confidence all at the same time. That you never become proud because you, you know when you look at the cross, the depth of your sinfulness and selfishness, you, you can't deny it. So you never, you never get all that proud. But also you never despair. Because when you look at the cross, you see how dearly you're loved. How can I despair when someone, my Savior, would die for me like that? Loves me to the, the depths of, of love that I can't even begin to, to love myself with. You never despair because you are loved to the uttermost. So let Jesus tell you who you are. Let him define your life. And when you do, you will find freedom, joy, contentment. Indeed, you will find your true self. Let's pray. Father in heaven, pray that you would help us to more and more lose what we call ourself in order to find the selves that you have created and redeemed in the person of Jesus. And that in so doing, we would become the kinds of people who are able to love and care for and contribute in the world as you have designed us to. We pray this in Jesus' name and ask that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would do this for us. In Jesus' name, amen.